In August 2012, a tour bus filled with sightseers stopped for a break at a rest stop in the southern part of Iceland. They were in the southern highlands of Iceland, and they were overlooking a canyon. It's very scenic, and so they got off to take pictures and take a break. One of the women in the tour group decided to freshen up, and so she got off the bus and went into the rest stop, changed her clothes, freshened up, and when she came out, no one recognized her. And so when the group got ready to go, they were determined to find this missing woman. They realized she wasn't there, and they gave a description of her to the whole group. And they began looking for her. And there were some 50 people involved in the search Professional rescuers, first responders began to show up. They were even going to bring in a Coast Guard helicopter to aid them in the search. All the while, the woman they were looking for was in the search party. And at 3 a.m. the next morning, she realized that the person being described was herself. As you and I think about this passage of Scripture today, It's very easy for you and I to miss what God is saying to us individually. Because when we think about God doing great things or working in a generation to turn the tide against sin and evil and darkness and the enemy, to turn it to where there are people responding to the gospel and the kingdom of God is actually advancing, we sometimes think, well, that's for the pastor or the preachers or some high-powered Christian somewhere, but it's not for me. And what this passage describes is that God is looking for someone, and that someone may be you. Asa was a king, one of the early kings right after King David and Solomon, and the kingdom divides, and you have a northern kingdom made up of ten tribes, of southern kingdom made up of two tribes, and Asa becomes the king. In the beginning, he did really well, and we'll see this as the story unfolds, but later in life, he doesn't do so well. But I want us to focus our attention on Second Chronicles chapter 16, verse 9. The words of a prophet coming to Asa later in life, and this is what he says. Second Chronicles chapter 16, verse 9. In the New King James Version, it says, For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong on behalf of those whose heart is loyal to him. In the NIV, the same verse says, For the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. What on earth is God looking for That's the title of this morning's message. I want to encourage you, if you've already not found it in your worship folder, you'll find a listening guide to help you follow along as we study together today. I want us to see four things in response to this question, what on earth is God looking for? First, he is always searching for someone he can use as a testimony to every generation. It says again, for the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth. 
On August 13th, just almost two months ago, at Vandenberg Air Force Base in California, a company named Digital Globe launched a satellite into space that was built to deliver the highest resolution photographs of the earth available for commercial purposes. And so companies can buy imagery from this company. The first images began coming back and circling at an altitude of 385 miles. This satellite has the ability to produce photographs with a resolution down to 30 centimeters. What that means is as long as objects are separated by about a foot, they can distinguish them. Circling 385 miles above the earth, the satellite has a capable of photographing 746,000 square miles a day. It can cover the entire United States in about five to six days. It can, it can discern and look at a tree and, and you can tell from the detail what species it is and whether or not it's healthy. You can tell the moisture content of the soil. It has the amazing capacity to deliver images basically anything the size of a home plate on any baseball field in the world. It can see through clouds, and I have some examples for you. These were the first images. This is from Madrid, Spain, all these images. This is a picture of looks like a parking lot. In the upper right-hand corner, you see a building, and next to it, there's a car, and the door is open, and they can blow it up. Now, these images, the military won't let them show you the full resolution, so they had to scramble them back to 40 centimeter resolution. I don't know what that means, but these aren't as good as the ones they look at. They can see an open door. Look at the next one. Here's, a, here's an aircraft sitting on a runway. They, they say you can see the seams in the runway and the seam even in the aircraft's skin of its wing. Look at the next one. Here's a, here's a row of airplanes at a terminal. The second airplane on the right from the bottom, the hatch is open. The plane underneath it's being refueled from 385 miles up in the air. Look at the last one. It's an excavation site. There's two excavators that can be seen in the blow-ups on the left. In the upper left-hand corner, there's a little dump truck. It's not so little. It's probably big, but you can see that there's nothing in the back of the dump truck. So all I'm going to say to you is if you have a habit of laying out in your fenced backyard and thinking no one can see you, <laughs> think, think twice about that. <laughs> in 2 Chronicles 69, 16 verse 9, the Bible describes God having a capability far greater than any human satellite. He's not looking at trees and trucks. Nothing stops him, but he looks at every human heart. He can tell what's going on in the human heart. He looks at everyone. It says his eyes run to and fro throughout the whole earth. Now, why everyone? God looks at everyone because anyone might be the right one. It could be you or you or you or you. Anyone might be the right one. It could be a girl in South Asia. It could be an old man in Europe someone he's about to use, I want to be that person, don't you? 
And throughout the history of the Christian church, he has done this again and again. There was a young man in his mid-20s. He was going to college late in life because he had worked on a farm to earn enough money to go. Samuel Mills went to Williams College in the early 1800s to study and to learn. It was an all-male institution in northwest Massachusetts, which was kind of a frontier area in the early 1800s. That campus, before he got there, was hostile to the gospel. People were skeptical. They were excited about scientific discoveries, and they believed that anyone that believed in Christ was superstitious and not too bright. And in the context of that environment, there was actually a revival that broke out as so many of the students came to know Christ. Samuel Mills was caught up in that revival. He wrote journals describing what took place. And, and if you might recall that all that a revival is, no matter what phenomena, what else takes place, all that revival is is what happens to people in the presence of God when he manifests his presence. And Samuel Mills and a few guys about a month into this revival, decided to start praying together. They prayed twice a week. They prayed on Thursdays and Saturdays. On one particular Saturday afternoon in August 1806, he and four other guys caught in a storm, ran under a haystack in a field on the north side of campus. They began to pray. Earlier that day in their geography class, they had studied about foreign lands, places like China and India and Burma, places they'd never been. And in the context of revival, their minds are going not to geography, but to the people who live in those foreign lands. And they began praying then, in that particular prayer meeting, that God would use them to take the gospel to those foreign nations. Six years later, as a consequence of that prayer meeting, they had influenced their entire denomination, the Congregational Church at the time, to send the first five missionaries, February 12, 1812, the American Board of Commissioners sent the first five guys and their wives overseas. Samuel Mills continued to work for the formation of mission boards. He helped create the American Bible Society. And two of the guys who were in that first group that went overseas were reading the writings of a man named William Carey, a Baptist in England. They're reading his writings because in the congregational church they baptize infants. But this man, William Carey, was a Baptist, and they couldn't believe that God had used William Carey to help start a mission movement in the United Kingdom. And so they're reading his writings, and in the process of reading what he wrote, they became convinced that infant baptism was an error and that believer's baptism was what the Bible actually taught. And so of those five congregational missionaries, two of them on board ship became Baptists. Now, when you're receiving all of your support from a congregational church and you suddenly adopt Baptist beliefs, you have a real problem on your hands. They haven't even arrived in a foreign country, and suddenly they are without support. One of the men was named Adniram Judson. He decided to stay, and he and his wife Anne began sharing the gospel in Burma. Luther Rice came home, and he began telling Baptist churches about these missionaries overseas and the need to raise funds to support them. Baptists got so excited about it, they began meeting every three years and that every three-year meeting, the Triennial Convention was immediate predecessor to the formation of the Southern Baptist Convention in 1845. Southern Baptists were birthed out of an effort to share the gospel. Forty different mission boards of 40 different denominations can trace their beginning to the prayer meeting of five young men under a haystack on a rainy Saturday afternoon in August 1806. The very first missionaries that left American soil came out of that prayer meeting. 
And Southern Baptist missions began there as well. I want to be like Samuel Mills. Don't you? Evan Roberts was a young coal miner who at the age of 13 began praying that God would come to Wales in the southwest part of England, this little principality, that God would come there. And by the time he was 26, still praying, he was starting to study for ministry, he had a dream one night, a, a, a vision of God handing a piece of paper to the Son of God that looked like a check and the number 100,000 was written on it. He gets up the next morning, he tells his best friend, I believe that God is going to bring a revival to Wales and 100,000 people are going to be saved. And God raised up Evan Roberts, 26 years old, and a host of other preachers who began preaching. And God came to Wales, and in the space of 10 months, in an area the size of northeast Arkansas, 100,000 people came to faith in Jesus Christ. I want to be like Evan Roberts, don't you? Marie Monson was a Lutheran missionary nurse in China in 1907. In 1907, there was a revival in Korea that defined Korea as to what it is today, 35% Christian. And she heard about this revival, and she'd heard about the revival with Evan Roberts in Wales, and she wanted to go. And God told her when she prayed about it, I'm not going to provide the funds for you to go to Korea. If you will pray here in China where I have put you, I will bring revival. And so Marie prayed. Not for one year or two years or three years, but beginning in 1907, Marie prayed for 20 years that revival would come to North China where she worked. And in 1927, revival began. And little Marie Monson, this missionary nurse, would stand before a group of other adults and missionaries and would read a verse like John 3, 3, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. In a very quiet voice, she would just say, have you been born again? And missionaries got saved. Our own Southern Baptist missionaries were a part of that movement in North China. Scholars tell us that if it wasn't for that movement, Christianity may not be what it is today in China, the fastest growing movement in China. Southern Baptist missionaries like Bertha Smith and Lucy Wright and Charlie Culpepper came back out of that revival and they began teaching what God had shown them in those early 1930s meetings in China. And it influenced a whole generation of pastors like Charles Stanley and Adrian Rogers and and Bailey Smith, and the list could go on and on and on. I want to be like Marie Monson, don't you? You see, God is looking at everyone, everyone here. He's looking at everyone because anyone could be the right one. Second thing I want you to see, he is serious about revealing himself to you. He's serious about revealing himself to you. It says he's looking to and fro through the, earth, the whole earth. Why? To show himself strong. To show himself strong. Now, you've noticed, depending on what Bible translation you have, that there's different words that are used there. Some, like the NIV, describe God looking to and fro so that he can strengthen those whose hearts are loyal to him. Others say that he might show himself strong to those whose hearts are loyal to him. So which one's correct? Well, if you go into the original language, what it says, in fact, is that he wants to hold strongly with. It's kind of an odd expression. He wants to hold strongly with that person whose heart is loyal towards him. What does that mean? It means both those translations are right. He wants to do something in them and through them. 
He wants to do something in them, through them, and for them. He wants to reveal himself to somebody. He wants to accomplish something. He wants to do something. And he wants to involve a particular individual in whatever he's about to do. Earlier this week, I think it was Tuesday night, I ran to Conway and spoke to a group of pastors. And my topic was maintaining intimacy with God. And as I walked into the meeting, I had my notes prepared, and I had a little PowerPoint presentation, I had it all ready to go, and God brought a verse to mind. And I knew that when he brought that verse to mind, intuitively, that he was saying, talk to them about this verse. And so I set my notes aside, and I said, I said, I just want to share one verse with you. James 4, 7 says, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. I love that verse. It's an awesome promise. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. And typically, when I've taught it before, I focus on the first half of the verse where it says, draw near to God, and what we do, what we do to draw near to him. But it's the second half of that verse that I want you to hear. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. What does that tell you about the heart of God? What does he want to do in relationship to you? He wants to be with you. You and I come to him when we pray, and we say, God, bless this person. Please do this. I've got this problem. God, would you help me find a new job? Help me find the right person to marry. Help me, God, with this person that I'm having trouble with at work. And we talk to God about those things, and we say amen, and we go on our way. And all the while, the Scripture is saying to us, draw near to God because He wants to draw near to you. What if I was just going to come into his presence and say, I want to be with you? Nothing more. I just want to be with you, Father. I want to please you. I want to know you. I want to hear your voice. I want to see something of your beauty and your glory with my own heart. He's serious about revealing himself to you as he looks at everyone because anyone might be the right one. Number three, he is not hiding from you, but he is waiting on you. He's not hiding from you, but he is waiting on you. It says he looks to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong on behalf of those whose heart is loyal to him. God is seeking a certain kind of heart. When he's looking at people all over the world, and according to this, he's looking at everybody. The heart in the Old Testament is the center of the physical, spiritual, moral life of every human being. 
It's where your conscience is. It's the source of anything you do that's right, anything that you do that it's wrong. By the time we come to the New Testament, the heart is the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit of God. It's a way of describing the core of who you are and God either being present or not being present. So he's looking at a certain kind of heart. Now, what kind of heart did he see when he first looked at King Asa? Now, if you have your Bible, let me encourage you to turn to 2 Chronicles 14, where the story of Asa begins. And let me just point out a couple of things. Because God did something incredible with Asa, and this verse comes later, so Asa is kind of a model for us of what this heart looks like. In 2 Chronicles 14, verse 2, the Bible says, Asa did what was good and right in the eyes of the Lord his God. For he removed the altars of the foreign gods in the high places and broke down the sacred pillars and cut down the wooden images. He commanded Judah to seek the Lord God of their fathers and to observe the law and the commandment. He also removed the high places and the incense altars from all the cities of Judah, and the kingdom was quiet under him. What does that say about this man's heart, his worship? His worship, his focus, his service was entirely directed at God. And as you go on reading through that passage, one of the other things that happens next is he takes the cities of Judah and he fortifies them. He builds walls. And what does that say about his heart? Well, in that day and time, if you were not particularly strong or powerful, you didn't build walls, you made alliances with other kings. And so here he is, this little kingdom of Judah, and he's building cities with walls around them. So where's his heart? Where's the direction, the trajectory of his, of his faith and his trust? It's not in man. It's not in other kingdoms. And then as we read, we come down to verse 11. We have this moment in his life as a young man. When this incredible army of a million men, the Bible says, this, this guy named Zira the Ethiopian has a million man army and he's coming against Judah from the south. And in contrast to the million men, he has about 580,000, about half as many. So we come to chapter 14, verse 11, and listen to what Asa does. Asa cried out to the Lord his God and said, Lord, it is nothing for you to help, whether with many or with those who have no power. I love that. That's a great verse to pray, by the way, when you're in trouble. It's, it's nothing for you to help, whether with many or with those who have no power. Help us, O Lord our God, for we rest on you, and in your name we go against this multitude. O Lord, you are our God. Do not let man prevail against you. What does that say about his heart? You see, when a guy has a heart like that, when a woman has a heart like that, God's eyes that are searching to and fro through the whole earth are suddenly riveted on that person. And that army that was vastly superior was defeated. After that, a man named, a prophet named Azariah came and, and blessed the king and said, look, 
God's, God's blessing you, and if you continue on this path, he's going to continue to bless you. And in, and, and in response to that, Asa throws this huge gathering and invites the whole nation together, and they make a covenant that they're going to seek God as a nation. And they all agree to it. And he even goes so far as he deposes the queen mother, his own mom, who's an idolater, who has idols that she's supported and that she's put her life into. And he says, you can't be the queen mother anymore. He removes her from official, her official position. What's he doing? He's saying, Lord, my affection is totally for you. There are no other competing affections in my life. My focus, my heart is directed at you only. That is a picture of the heart that captures the attention of God. The heart that God was seeking was loyal. One translation says, some say perfect, others say complete or whole or perfect. What's going on with the word? The word that's used there that describes the heart that Asa illustrates is the same word used in the instructions on how to build an altar in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, when you built an altar with stones, it was to be made of stones that did not have a blade taken to them. They were uncut stones. They couldn't be cut, shaped, molded in any way. You just took the rock the way you found it on the ground, and you stacked it up to make the altar. And so what is he saying by using this word? He's saying that the heart that captures the attention of God is a heart that's not cut in little pieces where you give just pieces of your heart to God. It's a heart that is whole for God. And when a person manages to take all of their affections, all of their interests, all of their passions, all of their dreams, and they put it in one pile, and they come to God and say, God, I'm going to put all of this before you, you suddenly have the full attention of Almighty God. So God is not hiding from you. You may say, well, pastor, why don't I see God doing more in my life? Why isn't God overcoming the evil I see all around me? Why don't I see more answers to my prayers? Why don't I see more victories in my life and fewer losses? Well, those very questions reveal the problem. All of those were about me, my prayers, the things I'm asking for, the things I want to see happen. And God's not waiting on a person to, to come to him with a set of plans and say, bless these plans. God already has a plan, and he has a plan for your life. He has something he wants to do through you as an individual that you have never imagined, you can never dream possible. He wants to do it through you, but he cannot do it through you until you and I come and we stop asking for all of the stuff that we want, and we set it aside and we say, Lord, no more of my dreams, no more of what I want. Lord, I just want what you want. Use me. Here I am. So he's not hiding from you, but he is waiting on you to come to him with a whole heart. Finally, number four, his active presence can be lost through unbelief and neglect. You see, the story of Asa, as amazing as it is when he's young, ends differently when he's old. And you need to see this. Asa changed as he got older. The first thing I see happening to him is he stopped relying on God. You say, well, how do you know that? Well, if you open up chapter 6 and you look at 16, 
and you look at the first few verses, you read an incident later in his life. He's been reigning now about 36 years, and, and suddenly the king of the northern kingdom, I just pointed south, the king of the northern kingdom, okay, builds a fortified city on the border, and he's hindering traffic and commerce between the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. He is a threat to Judah. His name is Baasha. And Baasha is his threat now to Asa. So what does Asa do? As you read those first six verses, you see that he, he went to the temple, he got some of the gold and the precious metals that were in God's house, and he took those metals and he sent them to a kingdom on the north side of his enemy, to Syria, to a king named Ben-Hadad, and he said, let's make a deal. I'm going to give you this stuff, and what I need you to do is stir up some military conflict on the northern side of my enemy so that he will retreat from my border and leave me alone. And Ben-Hadad was glad to do it. Now, on paper, on paper, Asa was successful. He was smart. He accomplished his goal, and the kingdom was made secure. But spiritually, he missed God. Listen to verse 7. The prophet Hanani, the seer, comes to Asa, king of Judah, and said to him, Because you have relied on the king of Syria and have not relied on the Lord your God, therefore the army of the king of Syria has escaped from your hand. What is he saying? He's saying you could have had the northern kingdom, Baasha, and Ben-Hadad. You could have beat them all. You could have... You could have been sovereign over the whole deal. You could have reunited the kingdom. You could have ushered in a whole new period of shalom among the people of God. He says in verse 8, where the Ethiopians and the Lubim, not a huge army with very many chariots and horsemen, yet because you relied on the Lord, he delivered them into your hand. You've been through this before, Asa. You could have done this. You had a, a vastly inferior force compared to the Zero the Ethiopian when you were a young man. You've been here before and you missed it. And then we come to the verse that we've been studying. The prophet says, For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong on behalf of those whose heart is loyal to him. And this you have done foolishly. Therefore, from now on, you shall have wars. 36 years into his rule. And he loses everything. Now, the newspapers would have said he was a great king. In fact, if you go to 1 Kings or 2 Kings, whenever they talk about Asa, they don't say anything negative about him. He was, he was a good guy. But spiritually, in the realm of the heavenlies, and where I can't see, in terms of what God had intended for Asa, he failed miserably. Now, let me talk for a moment to those of you who are over the age of 50. And I, I are one. In fact, I'm the oldest pastor this church has probably ever had. Mark Talbert left when he was 45. He was just a spring chicken. I came here at 52. There is a danger as you and I get older, we are smarter in many respects and we evaluate things better and we have better judgment than we did when we were 25. Amen? You do. 
And the danger of that is it's very easy for you and me to know what the best thing is, the smartest thing is, the wisest thing is, as you and I make decisions and process what's happening to us. And it's very easy, in fact, to say, well, I know a lot about the Bible, and I've learned a lot of theology, and I've learned a lot of basic truths, and so we can come to a place, if we're not careful, where we stop growing, and we stop asking questions, and we stop seeking the presence and the power of God in our lives. And in the worst case scenario, we stop the process of Christ being formed in us stops, and instead of becoming more and more glorious like Jesus, more and more gentle like Jesus, more and more loving like Jesus, we just become crotchety and cranky. Don't look at them right now. And everybody around you just says, well, that's just the way he is. I know they're saved, but they're just crotchety and cranky. Oh, I don't want to be like that. Do you? And so he stops relying on God. And he's, he is older. And I'm offering that as an explanation in part for his behavior. But what I want you to understand is that when you and I look at younger generations and how God uses the Samuel Mills and the Evan Roberts and the Marie Monsons in their, who are young adults and who are young people at the time that God uses them mightily, that it's not about God blessing someone because of their age. It's about God blessing their heart. And you and I need to have the right kind of heart. He stopped relying on God. He stopped listening to God. The Bible tells us in verse 10, Then Asa was angry with the seer and put him in prison, for he was enraged at him because of this. And Asa oppressed some of the people at that time. This is amazing. Asa, who started out so well, who started out with a heart that captured the attention of God, Asa becomes the first king to ever persecute a prophet in the Old Testament. First one. And then he crushes and oppresses the people who probably followed Hanani's teaching. It's very important that you and I are careful that when someone brings us a message, speaks to us critically, offers us constructive criticism, brings us a word from the Scripture, whatever the source, whoever the person, that you and I are very careful to understand that it's not about the messenger at that moment, it's about the message and is this from the Lord or not. God never spoke directly to Asa, according to the text. He always spoke through a prophet. And he missed God because he quit listening at some point in his journey. And he stopped being sensitive. Every Sunday school lesson, every sermon, every casual turning of the radio and hearing some preacher or some teacher, oh God, make us sensitive to those moments we may not have planned where you're speaking to us. He stopped relying on God. He stopped listening to God. He also stopped seeking God. Look at verse 12 of chapter 16. And in the 39th year of his reign, this is three years after the other failure, in the 39th year of his reign, Asa became diseased in his feet, and his malady was severe. Yet in his disease, he did not seek the Lord, but the physicians. I told someone earlier this week that I believe in the plenary, verbal inspiration of Scripture. You say, what in the world does that mean? Plenary means, I believe, all the words 
were inspired by God. Plenary means all. Verbal means the words themselves. Each individual word, I believe, was inspired by God. And I could talk to you all day long about the fact that there are different Greek texts and sometimes you have variant readings and all this kind of stuff, but that does not for a moment undermine my own conviction that the Spirit of God for 2,000 years has made sure that we have the text that we need to hear the voice of God. And in this particular text, it tells us that in his disease, he did not seek the Lord but the physicians. That is not a casual statement. It's telling us something very important. The word seek means to resort to, consult, inquire of, need information. He didn't turn to God in that way. At no point did he say, God, what is this about? God, how do you want me to respond to what's happening to me? God, how do you want me to respond to what's happening to my body or to my life or my family or my home or my church or my community or my nation? He just ran to the experts. I'm not for a moment trying to suggest to you that when you're sick, you shouldn't go to a doctor. I am suggesting to you that whenever anything happens to you in life, that the first place your heart should go and your mind should go is going to say more about who you are than anything else. And the Bible's saying he did not seek the Lord. He just went to the physicians. I want to read this final statement as I close. How can you prevent a drought of God's presence and power in your life? How can you prevent it? I've got three words for you based on what we've studied today. Daily desperate dependence. Daily desperate dependence. Why daily? Because every day matters. The Bible tells us that God has numbered your days. That this is the day the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. The Bible tells me that God has a plan for my life. And it is far greater than anything I could ever imagine for myself. That's true of you too. And that tells me that every day matters. No day is a waste. God has something for you every day to hear, learn, do, or become. God is at work and is available to you every day, daily, desperate. Desperate, that word speaks to urgency. Because every day does matter. And you and I aren't promised the next hour or the next day or the next week. I may not make it back for church tonight. If I don't, hallelujah, have a good night. Because I know where I'm going. And so there should be a sense of urgency. I don't have time to waste and neither do you. You may be younger and you say, I've got my whole life ahead of me. You don't know that. You don't know that you have your whole life in front of you. Your whole life, the greatest part of it, as far as your earthly existence, may be behind you. Every day counts. Daily, desperate dependence. If Asa had done this, if as a young man, what he learned as a young man, he had continued to do in his 30s, and he had continued to do it in his 40s, and then he continued to do it well into his 50s. The ending of this story would have been very, very different. Daily, desperate dependence on God. If you're a Christian today, and you already know Christ, 
My prayer is that you would come to a place in your own heart where you would take all the pieces of your heart. You know, we're the most compartmentalized people on the planet, I think, in North America. We have a work life. We have a home life. We have a hobby life. We have an internet life. (laughs) We have a life in our social mill. We have a life for everything. We have different compartments. And the whole principle of what we're being taught here in this passage of Scripture is that you and I need to take all the pieces of our life, all the pieces, put it together, and give your whole heart, all your affection, all your dreams, all your hopes to Him. And in exchange, the eyes of Almighty God that are roving to and fro across the whole planet Earth right now as I speak will suddenly stop on you. And I want to be a guy like that. And I hope men and women, boys and girls, you want to be people like that too. In just a moment, we're going to stand, we're going to sing. It's part of our worship, but it's a response time. We call it an invitation. And during this time in a church, sometimes it's just singing a song so we can go home and eat. But I hope that you'll make it an act of worship this morning an opportunity to open your heart to the Lord and say, Father, I heard what you're saying to me and and I want to say yes and here's where I want to go. Here's my whole heart. And I'm laying down all my preconceptions, all my dreams, everything that I'm counting on, the current direction I'm pursuing. I'm setting all that aside, Lord. I want what you've got for me. I want you And I want to be used by you. And I don't want to miss anything that you have in mind for my life. I hope that will be your prayer as we respond to him. If you've never trusted Christ as your Lord and Savior, this life, this relationship, this capacity to draw near to God is not possible until you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. The Bible tells us that the greatest problem you and I have is a sin problem. And sin is more than just a matter of doing the wrong things that displease God. Sin is a total attitude that says, I don't need God to do life. And that's why we do the wrong stuff. We just turn off what God says is right, and we determine for ourselves what is right and wrong, and that is sin. And it is your greatest problem. That sin separates you from your Heavenly Father. He knows absolutely what is true. He knows what is right. He knows what is wrong. He knows the truth about you. And you can either believe what he says about you is true or you can just pursue your own. But if you will come to a place where you say, God, I need forgiveness. I need for my sins to be wiped away. The good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ is that as the Son of God, he was sent to deal with your sin problem. That when he died on the cross, Peter writes that he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Not sin as a concept or a general idea, but every individual sin that you've ever committed or will ever commit that separates you from holy God. Jesus died in your place. And he rose from the grave as proof sin could be forgiven and death could be overcome. But you know what the greater part of the gospel is? He didn't die just to forgive your sins. He died so you could have a new life in him. 
that the relationship Jesus has with his Father is a relationship that you can enjoy. That when you trust Christ, his Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, comes to live in your heart and begins to change you from the inside out, causes you to begin to recognize his voice when he's speaking through his word or through whatever means he's speaking. Have you trusted Christ? Have you been born again? Does the Holy Spirit of God live inside you? Only you can answer that question. When we stand and sing, if you want to receive Christ this morning, there'll be pastors standing at the end of each aisle. They'll share scripture with you. They'll answer your questions. No one will pressure you. You can read the text for yourself. But we invite you this morning to come and to place your trust in Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, thank you. Thank you for the story about Asa and how very much we can learn from him. Father, help us this morning to become a people with a whole heart. Father, help us to recognize that there are areas of our life we tend to hold back and reserve for ourselves. Those of us that know you, Lord, this morning, may we become a church of a whole burning heart. A people who come to you individually and corporately and say, here's my heart, Lord. I want your plans. I want your purposes. I want everything that you have in store for me, for my church, for my community, for my nation. And Father, as we commit this time to you, would you through your Holy Spirit speak to every person here? And according to our need, would you lead us in our response? We pray in Jesus' name.